uh, this morning uh, for Resurrection Sunday. Um, on Friday, we gathered here for Good Friday to look at the crucified king. And this morning, we're going to look at the resurrected king. And then next week, we will be back in the book of Revelation looking at the glorified king. Uh, it works out in God's providence that we will be in Revelation 19 next week. Uh, where we get a picture of the glorified King Jesus. And so uh, all of these will thread together. Um, But this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, uh, looking at John's account of the resurrection. As we've been in the uh, book of Revelation, we're looking at uh, uh, writing by the same author, the Gospel of John, uh, to look at his uh, version of the resurrection. Well, one of the uh, advantages to living today in modern life is that Uh, is uh, history. We get an accurate understanding of history. We get to look in the past and there is good recorded history. There is good uh, uh, ability to have uh, facts and things be recorded accurately throughout uh, time, right? This was not always the case. History was not always uh, accurately recorded and uh, uh, left behind for uh, future generations, But one of the disadvantages to living in the modern age when it comes to history is sometimes we see history as a bare regurgitation of facts without the color and context of the story, the richness of the story. You see, in times past, in oral cultures, the story was the way in which you knew who you were. The way in which history was passed down was through these oral stories. And so the way in which you knew who you were and the life of the people that you belonged to but was by hearing stories. Sometimes I think as the church, we have forgotten the glory of the story that we're living in. Sometimes we have forgotten the glory of the story that we're living in. We get overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world, and then by the brokenness of the church. Abuse, injustice, scandals, wickedness, selfishness, racism, sexism, all of the problems that we experience in the world, and then we see it in the church, and we are overwhelmed. And in that being overwhelmed, sometimes we look at the history of Christianity and days like Easter as simply a bare set of facts. This thing that we hold to, that we affirm, but we lose the glory of the story that we're living in. So this morning, what I want us to do is recapture a little bit, try to recapture a little bit of the glory of the story that we are living in, the story of the resurrection. So we're going to do this in the Gospel of John today. So let's start here John chapter 20, we're going to, we're going to read through the whole uh, of John 20 here slowly as we walk through this. So, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Uh, commentators differ on what this, who this other disciple is, but I think it's pretty clear by the end and the way in which John has written throughout this that the other disciple is John. And this might be just a little jab at Peter, like, I'm a little faster than you, Peter. Just so you know, in a foot race, I win. 
He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. All right, there's a lot going on in this section. There's a lot going on here. And and what I want to do this morning, as we seek to recapture the glory of this story is to walk through the various parts of this story and to be honest about the places in which there arises some potential doubt in this story. There's actually a lot of space to doubt in this story, right? They show up at the gravesite, the the tomb. They have showed up there to uh, anoint Jesus's body with spices so that It would no longer smell bad in that spot as he began to decompose. And then they would come back later, like the way in which Jewish burial happened is different than the way in which we would do this now. But at at some point, eventually, they would collect the bones after the body has decomposed, and they would store those in a separate space. And so this is part of that process, moving in that direction. And they show up, and the stone has been rolled away. And the tomb is empty. Now, very early on when these resurrection accounts came out, one of the most scandalous parts of this is that the very first witnesses to the resurrection are women. Women's voices were not upheld in testimony in court. They were not to be trusted at this time. And so the fact that the gospel writers, all of them, identify Mary Magdalene as the one to first see Jesus is remarkable. Because if you were to make up a story, if you were to say, as some critics would say, that the church invents the story of the resurrection and then reads it back into the gospel accounts, that Jesus never really, like the early gospel accounts never really had any of this stuff, and this is all from the church coming back in, This isn't how you'd write it. This just simply isn't how you'd write it. It wouldn't make any sense. You would say, well, the Roman centurions, they alerted Pilate that Jesus had been risen from the dead. That maybe he, like, used lasers from his eyes to open the tomb or something crazy like that, right? You would invent a greater story. What's remarkable about John's account here is it's very ordinary. Just like the other gospel accounts. Because he's simply trying to describe what he experienced. I raced Peter to the tomb. I beat him there. And then the tomb was empty. There are two things that we're going to see throughout this account. And I'm going to reference a little bit uh, a book by N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Probably the best book on the resurrection. Uh, uh, If you've been here at other Easter's, I'm probably going to quote the same passages that I have before because it's just so good. Uh, It's like 900 pages, so if you want to pick up some light reading, you can go for it. Um, But it's just remarkable. But he identifies two things that come together for the early Christian belief in the resurrection. 
And he walks through historical arguments, uh, walking through, uh, is this what the early Christians believed? How do we know that? All those things. And there's two things that come together for this. It's the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus to others. These two things have to come together in order for this belief in the resurrection to, to happen. And here we see first the empty tomb. It's a pretty remarkable claim. But here's the other thing that's pretty remarkable about how John writes this. It's a pretty easy disproven claim. It's pretty easy to disprove that the tomb was empty because you just go open the tomb and show that Jesus is still there. You could just do that. We're going to look and see how some early folks responded to this. That's not actually what happens, not the tactic that's used, not in the, uh, not, we, we don't have any historical record of that being the tactic that was used to show that these disciples were crazy, that they had lost their minds. There's no evidence that anyone ever argued, no, 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 wait, we have the body of Jesus right here. We can show that. And there's lots of incentive to disprove these claims. We walked through, as a church, the book of Acts, right? The church explodes in growth and becomes a nuisance to both the Jewish leaders and the Roman government. They have lots of incentive to disprove the resurrection. And they never seek to. They never offer up, no, no, Jesus' body is really here. Look, we killed him. Look, here it is. They never do that. And so, there's, there's lots of, we'll hit a few other uh, spots in which there are some other uh, suggestions. But the easiest answer is that Jesus wasn't there. That the tomb was really empty. Now, this is something that modern folks really struggle with. But it's probably because we come to the text with some presuppositions of doubting the supernatural. We come saying, there's no way that that's possible, therefore it couldn't happen, which isn't actually how you do history. Right? That's how you do philosophy. That's not how you do history. How you do history is to say, let's look at all the facts and let's come to the most logical, probable conclusion. And the most logical, probable conclusion is that the tomb was actually empty. It was actually empty. Well, let's see what else happens. Uh, dear woman, why are you crying? Well, that jumped ahead. Sorry. I was like, wait a second. What happened here? Uh, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. This thing is struggling. Paul, can you uh, go through that? Sorry. Dear woman, why are you crying? Well, nope, back one more. <laughs> we'll get it, we'll get it. Why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. And I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Okay, I'm going to stop right here just for a second. You need to remember here, I think often when we read this account, we read into this, this assumption that they were waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. Mary has no expectation that Jesus is rising from the dead. She shows up and she thinks 
the Romans have taken the body. They think, she thinks that they are disgracing it in some way. She has no concept for what's about to happen. She is walking in assuming that someone has taken the body. Let's just remember that. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I have, haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then they gave then she gave them his message. So, along with the uh, empty tomb, if we're to understand why the early Christians believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead, Jesus appeared to people. He appeared to Mary. Now, at this point, we have to ask, what could possibly be going on here? Some people have said that, some, some critics have argued that the disciples, the early disciples, the women, what they experienced was a mere hallucination. The problem with that is there's really no good evidence historically for so many people having the exact same hallucination at different times. You see, this is not just the only place in which Jesus shows up. He appears to Mary. We're going to see he's going to appear to the disciples. He appears to other people. And not just in John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also the Apostle Paul writes of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, I passed on to you what was the most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have died. What Paul is saying is, check my work. You could go find these people, and they will tell you that they saw Jesus. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So we're to say that all of these people hallucinated. And again, if you pair this with the empty tomb... We have to say the way that you would prove that they were hallucinating is you would just show the body. Just produce the body. Or show the mass grave that you threw him in. Showcase it to them. If they are really losing their minds, if they are really hallucinating all of these things, then just answer them by showing them where you put the body. But that never happens. We never see that. Another argument that is used is that uh, there, this is really just projecting something that they, she was deeply longing for, that Mary was deeply longing for. That the disciples had set, spent so much time with Jesus that they just wanted to project this idea. And what they really meant is that Jesus uh, spiritually was resurrected and that his message would live on. And they brought together these uh, appearance stories because they were just projecting this thing that they had been expecting for so long. Well, as I said, Mary does not seem to be expecting that Jesus isn't there. Otherwise, she would have brought some other people with her, right? Would have brought the 
Why, why didn't Joseph of Arimathea, who had asked Pilate for the body, why didn't he say, Pilate, come check this out. I know what's coming. Come check this out. Let's go stand by the tomb and let's see what happens. N.T. Wright says this, they were not refusing to come to terms with the fact that they had been wrong all along, right? That we were waiting for a resurrection and it didn't happen and we just refused to come to terms with that. And so we're going to make these things up. On the contrary, they were indeed coming to terms with and reordering their lives around dramatic and irrefutable evidence that they had been wrong. What did the disciples do when Jesus is crucified? They don't stick around and wait for God to resurrect him. They run away. They are not expecting this. When John writes, hey, we began to believe because we put together all these dots, that's far later in which he is writing that. In the moments, this is not what they expected. This story, though, is not just raw historical facts. There's a lot of really good work that's been done to, to look at these things about how the early Christians believed these things. But it's not just raw historical facts. It's also deeply personal. When does Mary recognize Jesus? When he speaks to her. He says, Mary. And she turns and recognizes Jesus. Here's the question for us this morning. Why do you believe this story? Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead to never die again? There's lots of good historical reasons to believe that the tomb was empty. There's lots of good historical reasons to believe that Jesus appeared to others. But why do you believe that the answer to those two things is that he rose from the dead? Well, you may believe based on those historical things, and you're grounded in that reality, and yet also you believe because Jesus has spoken to your heart. Because Jesus has said, you. He's called you by name. He has called you by name. He speaks to you. Not audibly, but he has spoken to your heart. The one who created the universe. The one who sustains the universe by the word or by the power of his word has spoken to you. Paul says that he actually knew you before the foundations of the world. And, and not just that he knew you, that word really is more like he loved you before the foundations of the world. Before anything else was made, he knew who you were, who you were to become, and that he was one day going to call you to sit in this place and to hear this story. And maybe this is the first time that you've heard this story. And maybe he's speaking to your heart now, calling you by name. The God of the universe knows you, he sees you, he loves you. And not only that, everything we said on Friday is still true. That he, in all of his power and might and glory, died for you. He's a king like no other. 
He sees you. He loves you even in your rebellion and then dies for you. Friends, this story is just too good for us not to want it to be true. It's just too good. The God of the universe who created all things wants to be in relationship with you. And yet we know, if we're being truly honest with ourselves, that we don't deserve to be in relationship with the God of the universe. Anyone who thinks that they deserve to be in relationship with the God of the universe is kidding themselves. Even if you're like, the rules of the Bible are crazy, that, that, like all that stuff, you really want to stand before the God of the universe and say, I deserve to be here? I don't think you do. And yet he says, come near to me because I will pay for your sin. I will bear the burden of your punishment so that you can now come near to me because I love you. This story is so good that you should want it to be true, even if you're not sure it is. It's how glorious it is. Well, the story continues. Oh, now it's working. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Now, again, we need to recognize this. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. Why? Because they had crucified Jesus, right? Mary has seen the Lord, and she's told them they have not seen him yet. They're waiting, but they're still afraid. Why? Because they crucified Jesus. You see, the disciples were not expecting what was happening. The disciples deny Jesus. They run away from Jesus, and now they're locked in a room afraid. We're going to see a remarkable shift, and we have to ask why. What was that? I don't know what I did there. All right, well, something. All right. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them his, the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now it's not working again. You know, it's fine. All right, wow. Sorry. Whoop, okay. Nope, that, I was trying to fix it. I'm just not going to touch it. All right. All right, so this is the key, right? The disciples deny Jesus, they run away from Jesus, now they're locked in a room afraid. What changes for them between this and a few weeks from now? You know, a few weeks from now, they're going to be before these same Jewish leaders that they're afraid of, and this is what they say. Acts 2.32, Peter says this, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Keep going. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Now, this section, he's standing in the temple, or, or sorry, in the, the colonnade, and he's talking with Jewish folks, and he's saying this to the same crowd that was present who shouted, crucify him. This mob killed Jesus. Why, does Peter not be, why is Peter not afraid now? He was so afraid the night that it happened that he denied Jesus three times. 
And now he's saying, you killed him. That's a bit of a difference. And then they get brought in before the Jewish leaders, and this is what they say. Let me clearly state to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that he was healed. Okay, so he was healed. They, they heal a man, and everyone's like, whoa, what's going on? Something is happening. And so they bring Peter and John in before the Jewish leaders. And they say, he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. You see, what changed is that Jesus rose from the dead. After they say this, the Jewish leaders kick them out and they try to figure out what to do. They're like, what do we do about this? You know what they don't say? They don't come back and say, we killed Jesus, we're going to get his body, and we're going to show you that. They come back and they beat them and they say, stop talking about Jesus. And Peter says, yeah, sorry, man. I have to speak to what I've seen. I won't stop speaking about what I've seen. You would think that these Jewish leaders who were so concerned about Jesus and the movement that he had created that they killed him would go to their buddy Pilate and say, Pilate, do you see what his followers are doing? Show him the body. We killed him. Show these fools the body. Why don't they do that? Because Jesus isn't there. Because the tomb was empty. Again, to quote N.T. Wright, reports based on misunderstandings would quickly have been sorted out. The hoary old theory that Jesus did not really die on the cross but revived in the cool of the tomb has likewise nothing to, commend, to recommend it. And it is noticeable that even the, those historians who are passionately committed to denying the resurrection do not attempt to go by this route. Roman soldiers, after all, were rather good at killing people. And when given a rebel leader to practice on, they would have had several motives for making sure the job was done properly. A further, more recent suggestion can be ruled out that after his crucifixion, Jesus' body was not buried, but left instead for dogs and vultures to finish off. Had that happened, no matter how many visions they had had, the disciples would not have concluded that he had been raised from the dead. The reality is there's so much incentive in this early part of this movement to crush it. And they don't do so by showing the body. And the disciples are emboldened all the more. And they're emboldened to suffer. Right? Most uh, uh, critiques of the resurrection talk about the idea that this is an invention of the church to maintain power. Read the book of Acts. That's not what happens. They face brutal suffering because they believe in the resurrection. That's the thing that causes the suffering. And if it was just a hallucination or just a, no, 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 we're talking about a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily resurrection, they would deny it and run the other way. Human nature would not allow that many people to endure that much suffering for a lie for something they knew was not true. And yet, it's still hard to believe, isn't it? It was still hard to believe for those in the room. 
One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, nicknamed the twin, not doubting Thomas, right? It's really unfortunate because he actually does believe. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't stay in doubt. Was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hand, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Even seeing that, even if you and I were there, even seeing that, some of us would say, I don't know. I'm just not sure. Dead people don't come back to life. Dead people just don't come back to life. This is my favorite quote from the N.T. Wright book. He says this, what we do not know, not because we inhabit a modern scientific worldview, but because at this point All human history tells the same story is that someone who is well and truly dead can become well and truly alive again. Not because we're just so modern and these folks were so primitive. No, because all of history, all of our experience, everything that has ever told us something is that when dead people die, they die. There's no like, well, you know, every once in a while, we're not sure. Even folks that experience near-death experiences or they are clinically or, or whatever uh, pronounced dead and come back to life, right? That's more of a resuscitation of life. You know what those people do eventually? They die. They never, like, don't die. Every person dies. The Christian story about Jesus, N.T. Wright goes on to say, does not suggest, try to suggest otherwise. This point needs to be stressed. The early Christian understanding of Easter was not that this sort of thing was always likely to happen sooner or later, and finally it did. It was not that a particular human being happened to possess even more unusual powers than anyone had imagined before. Nor did they suppose that it was a random freak, like a monkey sitting at a typewriter and finally producing all's well that ends well, after we suppose several near misses. When they said that Jesus had been raised from the dead, the early Christians were not saying, as many critics have supposed, that the God in whom they believed had simply decided to perform a rather more spectacular miracle, an even greater display of supernatural power than they had expected. This was not a special favor performed for Jesus because his God liked him more than anyone else. The fact that dead people do not ordinarily rise is itself part of early Christian belief, not an objection to it. The early Christians insisted that what had happened to Jesus was precisely something new, was indeed the start of a whole new mode of existence, a new creation. The fact that Jesus' resurrection was and remains without analogy is not an objection to the early Christian claim. It's part of the claim itself. Here's the point of what he's saying. When when we think about the resurrection, oftentimes people think, like, those Christians are crazy. They believe dead people come back to life. No, we believe a dead person came back to life. 
We don't just believe that Christians walk around and it's like, well, that guy's never going to die again because, you know, he's a Christian. That guy's not, like, no, that's not what we believe. We believe that one person came back to life. And we are as shocked as you are. That's not what we were expecting. It's not what the disciples were expecting. It's glorious. It is unheard of. It is radical. And it's the reason people gave their very lives to this Jesus. It's the reason people were willing to endure such incredible suffering so many times. Because Jesus actually walked out of the tomb. John ends chapter 20 by saying this, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. Have you believed this story? Have you believed this story? If you're here today and you're not sure, you're, you're in the midst of doubts, you're in the midst of struggling through this, you're not sure what you believe, and it sounds too crazy and fantastical to be true, I just want to ask you one question. What if it is? Don't just sit in your doubt. Go investigate. Because if this is true... This is the most remarkable news you could ever hear. I mean, think about it. If this is really true and that the God of the universe came in the flesh, died on a cross, and walked out of the tomb, then you owe him everything you are. He gets the final say in everything because he walked out of the tomb. The one thing that you can never beat, he beat. No one, no matter how much money they have, no matter how much exercise they do, no matter what they eat, no matter what they give themselves to, they will die. You will die. Jesus didn't. Well, he did. And then he rose. Not to die again. This is the good news of the gospel. It's so good. And if you're struggling to believe... Ask the Lord. If he rose from the dead, he can reveal himself to you. And speak to your heart your very name because he loves you. And if you have believed in this, have you forgotten the glory of this story? Because if this is true and you believe in it, your life, every single part of your life should be shaped by this reality. Everything has to be shaped by this reality. This isn't something we just gather together on Easter to celebrate and then put in a shelf for next year. Like, okay, put all the Easter decorations away. No more resurrection talk till next year. Believing this story, and story not in the fictional sense, but in the narrative sense, believing in this story changes everything. It changes what we believe about the mission of God. Like the disciples... There is literally nothing the world can do to us. Stop talking about Jesus. We'll kill you. Well, he rose from the dead. Good try. We will make you suffer. Our king suffered. We will suffer too. We will exclude you. Our king was excluded. It's okay. He's got a place for us. 
The king of the universe is on our side. What can the world do to us? Why don't we live like this? Why do we live so often like the disciples, locked in a room, afraid of the world? We've been looking through the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation is all about those who overcome, those who conquer, those who have the strength not to kill or to fight, but to die, to love our enemies, because Jesus lives. You can go and face the brokenness of the world and the church, the injustice, the abuse, the scandals. All of this can now be faced pursuing the justice of God and the glory of forgiveness because Jesus walked out of the tomb. This changes the forgiveness of God. Jesus walking out of the tomb vindicates what he did on the cross. If you have any doubt as to whether or not Jesus forgave you of all of your sins, past, present, and future, the resurrection proves it. Jesus died for you, yes, but it wasn't your, his sins that he was dying for, it was yours. And so the resurrection proves that God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. If Jesus really walked out of the tomb, you are really forgiven of all your sin. Past, present, future, completely gone. As far as the east is from the west. As surely as it is that Jesus lives and breathes today, as sure as it is that you are forgiven of your sins. Now you can go and forgive as well. Changes what we believe about the hope of God. There is no such thing as a truly hopeless situation. If Jesus walks out of the tomb, God can overcome anything. I'm not saying there aren't dark places. I'm not saying there aren't places in which we experience darkness of the soul, that we are not struggling with brokenness. I mean, we're talking about this, right? Mental health in the church, that we are not in places where we feel hopeless. That is true. We go to those places. But what we need to remember is to tell each other this story, not in a sort of like uh, just sort of pat you on the back and say, it's okay, Jesus rose from the dead, it's okay. No, 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 not in that way. But in a way of sitting with each other in the real darkness that we experience, in the real hopelessness we experience, and then reminding ourselves that there is a better story. That Jesus also went into darkness and then came out of the tomb. That Jesus also experienced all of that pain and suffering and he knows it deeply and yet he rose from the dead. There are no truly hopeless situations. No matter what it is you're going through. A friend or a family member who refuses to believe in Christ and it seems so hopeless. They will never ever trust Jesus. Well, Jesus walks out of the tomb. We can't say never ever. Because never ever has a dead person come to life. I can't overcome this sin in my life. No matter how hard I try, it will always be true of me. No, it won't. Jesus came out of the tomb. He will one day free you from all brokenness and sin. My depression and anxiety is just too deep. I can't get out of it. I must run to something that will soothe my pain. Jesus walked out of the tomb. There is hope. 
changes the love of God. The love of God for you. You know more surely than anything else that God loves you. Certainly, this is true from what we said on Friday and sitting at the foot of the cross and viewing the cost that it was to pay for your sin. And yet, that's not the only place because Jesus didn't stay there. God shows his love for you in dying for you and then in raising from the dead so that you can join him one day in resurrection glory. It's not just that one day, or it's not that we believe as Christians that no one will ever be resurrected again. No, we believe that there will be a final resurrection in which we will all be raised because of Jesus. But that hasn't happened yet. There's this one glorious moment that we believe, the resurrection of Jesus, and that gives us hope for this other glorious reality that we believe that he will one day resurrect us from the dead to be with him in glory forever. So God loves you. And you can love him. Jesus is not a past figure that we look back on and say, we have loved Jesus. It's a present reality. Sits at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for you. You can love him. And it affects our love for others. If Jesus has walked out of the tomb, if he loves you more than anything else, and you now can love him, you can now also love others. The reality, though, of human nature is that we forget this story. Probably by this afternoon, you will experience something in which you will doubt and forget this story. That you will experience something and you will say, man, this situation is hopeless. That's why we come back every week. That's why the early church immediately started to gather, what? On the first day of the week. Why? Because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Everything about Jewish life is different. We no longer worship on the Sabbath on Saturday. We worship on Sunday. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. We need to be in life with each other if we are to remember this story over and over again and rehearse it for one another and remember the glory of it and apply it to the very specific, deeply painful parts of our lives. We've got to retell this story over and over again because it's glorious. Let's pray together. Jesus, we give you all the glory and the praise and the honor. And we ask that you would transform us. We want to be people of this story. We want to be good news people that tell the story of the resurrection, that live the life of the resurrection, that celebrate these things. So Jesus, would you, by your grace and by your spirit, come and say to our hearts our very name, just like you did to Mary that we would see you, that we would adore you, that we would worship you, and Jesus, that you would be lifted high in everything we say and do. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.